You've tuned in to the first anniversary episode of the Roundtable Podcast, part two, because we already had part one last week, so this is part two, which is, and so the party continues. I'm Brian Humphrey. And I'm Dave Robison. And you're listening to the Roundtable Podcast. Each week on the Roundtable Podcast, Brian and I invite writers to come onto the show and present a story idea to us and our esteemed guest host. That's right. And then we lead it into the back room, gently massage it, pamper it a little bit, and then beat the crap out of it until we find exactly what we want to get, which hopefully is literary gold (laughs) right (laughs) all right god i think we actually got it there dude happy birthday to us man yes yes happy birthday did you make the cake no no cake for us man besides it would it would just be a virtual podcast cake so that's right i'm just I'm, i'm i'm looking back on a year of podcasting and Freaking brilliant, man. Well, yes, and so many new friends, so yeah. many discoveries, so many inspirations. Uh, uh, the world has, you know, for both of us, Brian, I think it's honest to say, the world has changed. It's a different place. Absolutely. Abs- and and what, a, what a great thing when you go back and you look at all of the things that we've done and all of the people that we've had on, and you see that there are so many different people from so many different diverse backgrounds and, and diverse ways of approaching the same problem and that the problem is the same for all of us. Really? Yeah. yeah. How how do you get that book out of your brain and into the word processor? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and speaking of looking back, Brian, I'm, as I, as I look back, I look back to our first episode. I look back to our first workshop and who do I see? Whose grinning face do I see <laughs> leering at us from the distant past? But the same guy who's ready to sit down in the big chair right now. Shall, shall we That's introduce right. him back? I, I think that it's an absolute must. I have a moral imperative. I couldn't agree. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the author of the Antithesis Progression, the Clark Lantham Mysteries, uh, uh, resources for writers on how to deal with guns, how how to do audiobooks. See, my tongue becomes tangled with all of the wonders that this guy has undertaken during the course of his life, and it's only just begun, dear friends. Please welcome him back after a year. Actually, it's only been a couple of days because he was just here for 20 minutes with Mr. J. Daniel Sawyer. Dan Sawyer, thank you, sir, for returning to the roundtable and workshopping a story with us today. We appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me back. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. See, now last year we asked, you know, what's on the plate for Dan Sawyer? And you gave us a wonderful lengthy exaltation of amazing things that were coming off of your desk and, and coming into the world. And sure enough, Damn near all of them did, which is no small task. So, all of them except the audiobooks, because I had to move house. Exactly. Your studio <laughs> literally disappeared, uh, which makes audio production very difficult. Um, but now, now a year later, I can only imagine the mayhem that is simmering and percolating on your desk. So please, Dan, tell us and our listeners uh, what's coming up for Dan Sawyer in the coming weeks and months. Well, in the next uh, couple of weeks, we'll have seven new paperbacks out. All, all but two of them are books that have already been available in uh, in ebook. We're catching seven, up. Seven, seven new seven. paperbacks. Mm-hmm. Holy crap! That's amazing. Yep. And then a, f- a further few over the next uh, couple of months after that. Give us a quick uh, rundown. What are the, what are the paperbacks? Oh, let's see. Uh, the the uh, Lanthams two, three, and four. That's a ghostly Christmas present. Smoke rings and Silent Victor are all coming out. Okay. Um, the paperback of Frock Coat Dreams expanded from the ebook edition with uh, new poems and essays added in. Awesome. Oh, what else? Uh, the paperback of Making Tracks just came out. The paperback of Throwing Lead will finally be coming out. Um, what was the holdup on that? Um, it was, well, it was two things. First of all, it was our first, uh, it was the studio's first complex nonfiction layout. And so ah. we've gone through several revisions establishing the style. Gotcha. And then I got a very pointed review from a British special services guy 
um, pointing out that the book was wonderful except for a handful of things that really are errors on our parts that slipped past all our fact checkers. So I'm having to basically write a second edition. Oh, and that is the beauty um, of e-publishing <laughs> when you get right, right so, down to it. So, I mean, it. it's it's basically just the section on, on how I break out the taxonomy of machine guns. So that's getting a rewrite. And so those things held it up, but it's finally coming out as well. Excellent. Excellent. Um, Oh, let's see. What else? Uh, uh, ideas incorporated, um, which is, uh, a, an, an adventure farce, uh, suave Rob's double X daring do the story of a far future transsexual evil Knievel who wants to surf a supernova. <laughs> <laughs> and then slightly further on the free the paperback of free will will be coming out as well and then and then this year of course i'm catching up on audiobooks there'll be a bunch of audiobooks out this year outstanding um, excellent I'm, i am currently writing um lantham number five i should finish that next week it'll go off to proof and it'll be released sometime in may um it's called he ain't heavy and uh Pecking away at antithesis number three, and I'm half done on two other books. One is a um, a young adult uh, adventure story set in the 1950s in the South called The Summer Town, and the other is a YA fantasy called uh, This The Automotive. YA, Dan, really? Hmm? That's a bold step for you. I, I you know when I look at your your curriculum vitae. That that does not scream YA to me. Well, that's why it's a fun stretch. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that's outstanding. He continues to push envelopes and boundaries. He continues to unpo- un- unfold another aspect of the puzzle box that is the world. That's awesome. That's right. Very cool. What about cons and conventions? Are you are you heading out anywhere? Um, my depending on whether or not a production contract comes through next week, I may be at Balticon. Oh. Still waiting to get ink on that contract, and I'm thinking of hitting a local con in November. Okay, but uh, otherwise, otherwise, not a big convention year for me. Um, okay. I've got, I've got, a, I've got a big to do list to clear. <laughs> You're right. All right, fine. We'll just, we'll, we will trust to fate for that, and we'll put, we'll put Balticon in the liner notes with a, a hopeful question mark next to it. Uh, along- I suppose the la- the last thing worth uh, announcing is that I managed to secure the audio rights to one of Gail Carriger's books, so I'll be doing a Kickstarter campaign this spring. Oh, which one? Can you tell? To fund a full cast adaptation with original music. It's uh, it's her unpublished science fiction novel. Oh, called Crud Rat. Awesome. She wrote it. She wrote it after she wrote Solus. It's fabulous, but when Solus hit so big so fast, her publisher didn't want to pollute her brand until she was established. Ah. And she's been getting so many contracts, you know, to to add on top of that series that she's not been able to go and work on anything else for a while. So it's been sitting around. I asked to read it. I loved it. I said, "I'll do a deal for you for the audio rights." And she's like, "Really cool." So. <laughs> So we're going to be doing a Kickstarter. That's outstanding. That is fabulous. And and you may rely upon the roundtable and our roundtable legions uh, to shout that to the mountaintops because that's just absolutely that's outstanding. Excellent. I'll keep you posted. Yeah. Please do. Very Please cool. Do. God, always cool stuff coming out of Dan's desk, man. Holy crap. Well, no shit. Look, guys. Dan, we'll make sure all of that fabulosity gets tucked neatly into the liner notes uh, uh, for this post. But for now, yeah, now we got to focus our attention on you, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is usually not a problem for me. But now I'm strangely nervous. Uh, <laughs> friends, we will we will pause here. We will give airtime to another uh, awesome podcast or ebook or or Kickstarter project, as the case may be. Uh, when we come back, we will workshop not just a story, but oh god, my story. So. <laughs> friends don't <laughs> don't go anywhere we'll be right back storytelling has been a part of our lives since the dawn of civilization but to this day authors and readers still discuss and debate the perfect blend of character plot and setting to craft a great story now you can be a part of that discussion geek and sundry presents a remarkable monthly series titled the storyboard Hosted by Patrick Rothfuss, author of The Name of the Wind and Wise Man's Fear, each episode is a live panel discussion on the very essence of the writer's craft. Gathering a different constellation of stellar authors for each panel, the storyboard offers up a live discussion that is vibrant, diverse, and sometimes contentious. 
but always relevant to today's dynamic world of storytelling. The storyboard discussions occur on the first Tuesday of every month at 8 p.m. Pacific time on Google Hangouts. Just subscribe to the Geek & Sundry YouTube channel or add Geek & Sundry on Google Plus to receive notifications. The Storyboard, continuing the quest for how to tell a great story. Lords and ladies of the Roundtable Podcast, welcome back to this very, very special anniversary episode of the Roundtable Podcast. And we're getting into the workshop now, but it's a little bit different. And uh, we're going to be workshopping somebody in particular's story who has a tendency to do very, very big and grandiose introductions. But who can introduce him when it's his turn, and uh, it seems that that task has fallen upon my shoulders. So, this master of disguise portrays himself as a typical day jobber whose career involves web design and development. But as he's mining through tedious lines of code and graciously bowing to upper management, his mind is ablaze with all things creative and biting. His grasp of the marketability of ideas is unrivaled, and his reach extends well beyond the realm of simple storytelling. But to fully understand this paragon of a man, we must first map out his sequence of endeavor. At the very young age of eight years old, our guest writer was already taking his heroes and altering their worlds, beginning with writing his own Curious George fan fiction. From here, he embarked on a series of adventures and courageous curiosities, including improv theater, playing the trumpet, dabbling in magazine cover art, slinging ink into marvelously conceptualized audio scripts, and all along the way, games upon games would manifest spontaneously and sometimes dangerously from the fringes of his electrified mind. <laughs> and as if all of this was not enough to slay his creative lust for expression. He went ahead and did the one thing that produced a constant stream, nay, outpouring, nay, avalanche of inspired energies for him to feed off of and finally sate his seemingly unending appetite for creation enough to allow a generous rain of inspiration to fall upon the rest of us and fuel our own pursuits. He created and set in motion none other than the Roundtable podcast itself. Ladies and gentlemen, he has been called the master of the epic introductions, the crazy man behind the microphone of literary gold, the one voice to silence them all. Please join me in welcoming to the guest writer's chair for the first time in Roundtable history, Mr. Dave Robison. <laughs> Holy crap, dude. Dave, ladies and gentlemen, join me in a round of applause for that <laughs> awesome bit of fabulosity. Holy crap, dude. It's See, now we can do this head-to-head -head thing because you totally have chops. That was amazing. <laughs> I'm going to go take a nap now. <laughs> he didn't even get to the voice acting part of it. Either. Oh, my God. Oh, that's right. There was so much that I, I just, you know, I just had to end it at some point. <laughs> Brian, I, I am honestly, I, I, I choked up about halfway through and, and that was beautiful, man. Thank you. I, I, now I understand why everybody feels so intimidated after one of those intros. Cause it's like, <laughs> yeah, I do I like, like them. Apples. I know I need to put on the pasties and get on the table and dance. Like Dan was saying That's earlier. Right. Holy right. crap. That was awesome. You Thank you. <laughs> there, there it is. And there's, there's the voice in the distance, Brian. Thank you so much. But now, as we all know, our, our, our shui is unfunged, uh, our chi is out of balance, we've, we've only got three guys here, we need a fourth to make, what? Right. I am stealing that line for the next <laughs> my shui is unfunged. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to have Rachel say that in the next Lantham book. 
awesome. awesome. <laughs> That's badass. Um, but but speaking of badass, we need that fourth to make yes, this work. And 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 that individual can only be uh, uh, the editor of the Walk the Fire anthology, the the creator of the Enemy Lines series. The oh my god, so many awesome tales uh, uh, pouring out from this man's desk. Uh, not to mention exquisite podcast gold uh, uh, that not only fills our heads with audio fiction delight, uh, but also useful content, valuable tips, and guidance to navigate the the darker reaches of the potosphere. Uh, uh, and by that, I mean the tricky audio production part, not the porn. Um, dear friends, <laughs> uh, please welcome back to the big another big chair at the roundtable, uh, another host veteran. Uh, here at the round table, Mr. John Miro. John, dude, thank you for being our plus one tonight, man. It means a lot that you're willing to step up and, and help workshop a story. We appreciate it. Oh, heck, it's ha- it's great to have a seat at this table, Mr. Robinson. And to hear you have been daved like that, that was delicious. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm a verb. I'm a verb. You've been daved. Oh, man. I I've, I can die a happy man. That's awesome. I can die I'm a sorry, happy man. John. I'm afraid we can't dave that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. We can just riff on that all night long. So, so Brian. I don't think we're ever actually going to get to your story. Maybe that's the plan, right? Yeah. No, no. <laughs> Brian, what, what's what's next, man? What do I what do I do? All right, well, Dave, and this part I don't have written down or memorized, <laughs> so I'm just gonna kind of wing it. Okay. Um, <clears throat> thank you for coming and uh, bringing your. <laughs> there's a joke in there too. There is. <laughs> and bringing your story idea for us to peruse. Um, you have between five and eight minutes to present your story idea to us. You know what the structure is like, so we need protagonist, antagonist, title, theme, uh, genre, whatever nice little package you have this thing wrapped up in, because as eloquent as you are of a speaker, I have no doubt that we're in for a treat. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, I, I hope so. I, I, I really hope so. This this story has gone through so many changes. As soon as the idea of actually workshopping our own story uh, uh, came up, uh, this is I, I, I now I understand what every single guest writer has gone through uh, uh, who has sat in this chair. So let me let me dive into this. Um, the title Good. is tentatively named uh, uh, "A Boundary of Tombs." Uh, the genre is speculative fiction of a very strange and fantastical nature. That's all I can give you. Um, the format is, it's likely to be a novella. Uh, there's, there's, there's too much here to be a short story, but I'm not sure there's enough for a full novel and I'll defer to you guys to let me know about that. Um, the tagline is when a woman uses her privilege to spare her daughter from a noble death. The consequences cascade into a maelstrom that may erase her entire world from existence. The theme uh, is basically mistakes are inevitable. Uh, The true measure of wisdom is not in being able to avoid mistakes, but how you treat the wounds inflicted upon the world by the mistakes that you do make. Um, Now, I need to explain a little bit about this world that this takes place in. First of all, the universe Uh, uh, The story is set in a universe where reality has shattered, uh, where once there was a continuum and expanse of universes that extended infinitely in all directions, there are now only shards, fragments of reality that hold the last remnants of life and existence. Uh, A few are as large as continents, others are so small you can throw a stone across their length, but all are bound by silvery mists. And beyond the mist is the void, the inevitable and infinite emptiness that cradles all realities, sustaining and sometimes consuming them at its whim. Now, a couple things about the void. Uh, these, These diverse cultures and species that populate these shattered realities are able to communicate and travel across the void with magic, which is rare, uh, but more common... across Across the void or across the mist? Uh, Well, beyond the mist is the void. So it's like the mist is wrapping the realities. And if you step through the mist, you enter the void. I'm glad I asked. I misunderstood. Okay, very good. Thank you. Yes, by all means. Um, So the void lies beyond. To travel the void with magic, but more commonly, uh, it's done with the assistance of a rift walker. uh, Someone with the ability to travel through the void to the other realities. 
now, among the greatest dangers of the void is what's known as storm season, a cycle of time when the void swells with fury and chaos. Uh, whole shards have been washed away during a storm season, never to be seen again. Now, within the shards, when storm season is taking place, the mists heave and boil, pushing forward and consuming more of the reality shard. Sometimes, however, the mists actually withdraw and, like a curtain, reveal strange lands that were not there before. Now, the world where this story takes place is, is a world called Lycera. Uh, now, most of the other shards see Lycera as an evil and hellish place where priests of the dead demand sacrifice and death. Uh, it is whispered that the boundaries of the land are marked by stones washed red by the blood of innocence. Crusades have actually been mounted against Lycera by righteous shards to free the people and end the slaughter, but all have been repelled by Lyceran armies. Tales of this land are used to frighten children across the many shards. Now, Lycera is not completely isolated. Uh, although rift walkers are considered heresy within the shard, uh, there is a walled precinct cut off and secure from the rest of Lycera where merchants and diplomats gather to conduct their respective trades. Now, the people of Lycera don't see themselves that way. They believe that they are defended by those who are sacrificed, that the dead serve in the afterlife to fend off the void and protect the land. The sacrificed dead are therefore remembered and revered, and to be chosen to defend Lycera in death is a privilege and an honor. Okay? So that's the world in the setting. The characters. Our primary POV character is Anna, and all of these names, everything in here is completely up for grabs. Uh, Anna has held the sacred title of Legatine, or Keeper of Legacy, her whole adult life. Uh, the Legatine office, uh, uh, the task of the Legatine is to lay with the sacrifices in order to conceive a child uh, so that the, the line continues and the heroes are remembered. Um, in her youth, she broke the rules and took a lover, the handsome and steadfast Rafe, uh, who also was a Legatine. Uh, she became pregnant by him, but of course, there's no way she could know this given her office. It was only when her daughter was born and grew to maturity and was then selected as a sacrifice that her great sin was revealed. Uh, Anna convinces her lover Rafe to smuggle the girl out of Lycera, which is a forbidden act, and she never sees either of them again. Uh, she's forced to abandon her sacred office, but continues to tend to the other children within the Legantine office. Uh, she's earned a legacy of shame in the eyes of her people and her in her own heart. Uh, so she loses herself in the legacy of others, studying their stories and their background. She's now 42 years old. She's short-tempered and sharp-tongued and has convinced herself that she's moved past the sin that disgraced her 20 years ago. Uh, she's wrong. And, and when she is confronted with issues of shame or unworthiness, she quickly degrades herself with mockery or vulgarity, uh, being a, a good offense being her defense. Uh, she misses her daughter and her son, Pelias, who we'll hear more about in a moment. Uh, in the end, when her son and her lover offer her escape and vengeance, she will instead make a truer sacrifice to preserve Lycera. Uh, another character, a supporting character, is Kafar. Uh, he is another legatine. He's age 34. He's jaded by the corruption that he sees relating to the sacrificial progression. When someone is chosen as a sacrifice, wealthy and powerful people solicit them uh, to defend them in the afterlife, offering them money and power for their for their, uh, for their children uh, and, and any living survivors that remain behind. Some of them even barter favor, uh, put pitting powerful families off one another. Um, Kafar has become basically a broker and a pimp, uh, uh, securing a very wealthy lifestyle. His assignment to Anna as her uh, legatine when she is chosen as a sacrifice is a punishment. 
since no one will want to be a part of her story, there's going to be no brokering or pimping to be done. Uh, uh, he resents it and uses his vacation uh, to pursue his side interests of a less than legal nature, specifically the smuggling of innocence outside of Lycera. Uh, now, with time, Anna will help him discover the nobility of his role as legatine, and while he will never believe himself truly worthy of the role, his rekindled devotion will guide him to support Anna through the darkening times ahead. Um, Rafe is another character, her lover. Uh, in escaping with Anna's daughter, he exiled himself but discovered the truth and has come to believe that the, the high priest of Lycera is actually corrupting souls that are being sacrificed, using them to anchor the land somehow. Uh, he has recently returned and has been smuggling people out of Lycera ever since. Uh, he's recently been contacted by a warlord to facilitate an invasion of Lycera, smuggling warriors into the land to breach the great uh, fortress defenses from the inside. Now, he's going to be considering this when he learns of Anna uh, and Kefar and believes in his heart that Anna was right in her first choice to, to get their daughter free and to flee himself. Uh, he will tempt her with love and the promise of seeing their daughter if she flees. When she refuses, he will agree to help the warlord set up the invasion. Last character is Pelias. Uh, uh, he was one of the children left behind after Anna's sin. Uh, all of her children were then called into question. Nobody knew whether which child was actually the child of a hero who was sacrificed or just the fruit of Anna's lust. So all of her children were called into question. Uh, Pelias was but an infant, and so Anna loved him dearly because he would not judge her, but he was also weaned on her bitterness and loss over losing her daughter. When he was 16, he tried to volunteer to be a sacrifice to rede redeem his mother's honor, but he was refused because... His father may have been one of the sacrificed, and we cannot have him dying. Uh, he even tried at one point to kill himself uh, ritually uh, so that he could somehow secure his mother's honor, but the high priest himself stopped the boy. Uh, he actually did die, but he was revived by the high priest. Now, he's had one foot in death, uh, and he has sworn vengeance uh, upon the people that have inflicted this wound on his mother. And that gentleman is about as far <laughs> as I've gotten. Um, I wow. honestly, yeah, I know. I don't have, the, the, the problem is, is that this thing has gone through so many changes. Uh, uh, what I just described to you was actually the original story. Now it's the backstory for what happens moving forward. Um, so I, I have some some set points to lay forward, but... I guess what I'd like first is to get some initial feedback from you guys about these characters, about this world. Is it too much? Uh, uh, and, and, and to possibly discuss some of the, some of the points that we can move forward with on this. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yup. Okay. First, so this is not a novella. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is at least two books. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Let's let's get into it then. Um, Brian, do you want me to lead this, or do you or do you have it, sir? Um, I think at this point it's okay just to go back to you know our our regular format. Up. Okay. Then let's yeah. take a quick trip around the table um, and and just get some first impressions uh, uh, from each of you. Uh, uh, Dan, as as guest host, give us what what are your first impressions of the story? Um, uh, what what would you like to explore deeper uh, with the rest of the discussion ahead of us? Uh, uh, any questions that that came up along the way? Uh, uh, start us off, sir. Okay, well, I'll start off with the question that came up along the way. Okay. How can you have a male legatine when the point of legatines is to have the children of the sacrifices? Good question. I had the same question, yeah. Okay. Um, the sacrifices can be male or female. Therefore, the legatines whose, jo legatines whose job it is is to produce a an heir from the chosen sacrifice. If the chosen sacrifice is female, then the legatines lay with the female sacrifice. She comes with child, and that child is then preserved and lauded as uh, 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 the offspring of one who stands behind the veil of shadows. Oh, God, that's terrible. 
So the, the, if if you're a female sacrifice, you get a whole good nine, ten months to look forward to dying. Whereas if you're a male sacrifice, you get to have it off with a hot chick and then kill. <laughs> well, actually, there's a procession. Uh, uh, it takes uh, there's there's a three year cycle, uh, uh, and and for three years you are you are paraded around the land so that everyone can see you, everyone can recognize you, and learn your story. Uh, and then with each year that passes, one of the sacrifices dies, is sacrificed, and then a new sacrifice comes in, and the procession continues. Okay, so that makes more sense. Hunger Games. Uh, yeah, yeah, it has that. It has that quality to it, certainly. Oh, okay. So, all right. For my first observation is that this is no novella. This is two books at least, and probably three. Okay. Where, um, where do you see the break? Well, the backstory about the baby. Okay. And the defection. That's one book. Yeah, good fifty. You get a good sixty to eighty thousand word thriller out of that. <laughs> okay. I'm 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 really serious. If you want to see how that kind of thing is done, read Ken Follett's The Eye of the Needle. Mm, okay. It's it's not the same plot at all, but it's structurally the kind of thing you would want for that sort of a, a book. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Um. Then you've got the the second plot where Anna's an older adult and she's repented of her sin, but her old lover is now playing the opposite side and they're going back and forth at each other and the whole thing is unfolding there against the high stakes of an alternate invasion. That's a much longer book. That's a good 500-page book. Okay. Easy, easy. 130, 140,000 words. Um. If not more. Okay. So that, and the reason that you want the both books is that you're resting so much of the thematic weight on the relationship and the changing relationship between Anna and her lover and Anna, Anna and her lost daughter and Anna and her suicidal son that you're either going to be doing that much in flashback along the way, in which case this is going to be a very long book, or you're going to break it into two books and tell it in a linear fashion. Okay. But to support the kind of thematic weight, particularly the countercultural thematic weight, because you have to remember Americans like stories about people who throw off the system. And you're in, the entire moral thrust of your story is a woman maintaining her righteousness and complicity with a human sacrifice cult. Right. You've got a much longer bridge to cross to win your audience's sympathy than if you were telling a story about revolutionaries. Okay. I see, I, I see what you're saying. Okay. Um, and, it's, and, and, the, and the way in which it looks like you want to explore this, taking that time will really help win the audience's sympathy that way. Okay. Okay, excellent. Um, the other thing I've got is you've developed this way too much. Uh, <laughs> no, no, it, it's not, not in the sense that any of it's bad, but in the sense that um, it's obvious that this, you know, that this is your first novel, and one of the things that implies is that you've been tinkering with it for about a decade. Yeah. Yes, yes, and, yes, it, yes, it, yes. And, and that comes across in the way you've told this story so many times in your head that there isn't a story left for you to write. Ah. And that's going to be a problem for you, and that's why my next suggestion is stop tinkering. <laughs> and start stop tinkering start writing and consider and consider doing something like two books or coming in from an oblique angle so that it can be fresh enough to you to be worth writing because this is going to be a hell of a job it's okay. a long haul complex book it's very ambitious you can totally do it but you're going to need to trick yourself into staying interested rather and interested instead of obsessed cuz obsession you can enjoy just thinking about it but interest, interest thinking about it isn't enough. You have to go do it, too. This is what we were talking about back in the 20 minutes with. I get that. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. Awesome. Very cool. Thank you, Dan. Uh, John Miro, for you, sir, first thoughts and any questions? Uh, my first thoughts are I agree very much with Dan. This is at least two books. I would suggest you might even want to, depending again, this is 
no longer the 50s. You have to decide how you're going to release this. Um, I would be tempted to say this is a series of four or five novellas, similar to the Lantham short fiction, actually, with a strong through line. I think you're going to have a, some pretzel problems, very much like Dan said, with... You've, you've described this so many times to so many people that you've kind of got a muscle memory for things that are going to limit you and you got to break through to actually tell a story. So what I think the most important thing for you to do is to, I think, find two large stories that you need to tell. I think Anna's youth, um, climaxing with her baby shaming, getting the large letter A written on her somewhere, um, and Anna's older exiled life, uh, are going to be two very strong frameworks for a novel or for several short works. That's up to you. But I think that by breaking it into several short works and concentrating on the smaller plots and where you want to Jenga in warlords, (laughs) competing nations, um, those are the things that are going to be the exercises that allow you to tell the story and forget about the larger framework. Okay. And that's actually a valuable exercise, even if you decide to release it as a single book. Um, you've, you were in Free Will, so you know how sprawling that thing is. Sure. I wrote that as nine novellas and then weaved them together. I could not write the book as such because it was too complex. So I plotted out nine different through lines. I wrote nine novellas and braided them together. And that may be what you need to do for this. I see. Release it as yeah. an epic large book. Okay. Okay. Another trick is think of it as um, I'm I'm doing this for an upcoming podcast myself. Think of it if you want as a season ten episodes of yes. Cable. Write it that way. They're all exercises that are going to give you a story at the end. Going in the reverse way, George R. R. Martin. One book is ten ten episodes. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. I, I yeah. thank you, gentlemen. I'm already. I'm see muscle memory. I hadn't even considered that, but it's. Yeah. Uh, anything else, John, before we, before we, uh, just for opening thoughts? Well, um, my opening thoughts would be that I really think you need to build up Anna as a contrast. The young Anna, I keep thinking of Atwood and The Handmaid's Tale, but I think that's the wrong way to go. I think that's too easy. I think the better way would be to go is to have her a very ardent believer and supporter of everything which makes her failure, her fall, so much more tragic. But also, um, by being an unreliable narrator, you can have her see things that she just can't believe could be true because she believes in the high priestess so much. And then that knocks and knocks from the, in the reader's mind, which will make it so much more satisfying when she's old and bitter, and uh, things may take a different turn. I like that. I've actually, I've actually got a model you may want to check out for that. Okay. Um, and no one is going to believe this because I'm about to recommend Christian fiction. <laughs> uh, I'm glad we're getting this recorded. Thinking, we're getting this recorded. All right. Stephen R. Stephen R. Donaldson's uh, Pendragon Cycle. The first book is called Taliesin, oh, and yeah. it's actually three shorter books back to back. The first of those three shorter books deals with um, a with the woman who eventually becomes like Merlin's mother right. as a young woman on the island of Atlantis. And she's into the blood sports and the human sacrifice. She's a priestess herself. She absolutely believes it. And by the time Atlantis crumbles, you don't want it to happen. And remember, this is written for a Christian audience, so they have much lower tolerance for paganism than, and by Christian I mean conservative evangelical. They have a much lower tolerance for sympathy with paganism than even rationalists do. Right. Right. So... He had a hell of a job to make his audience love not only the woman, but her civilization and make us cry when it fell. See, and that's very much what I want to try and what I'd set out to do with this culture and this world was to show that different perspective of a, a culture that everybody would say, ooh, that's bad, that's evil. Well, no, it's a matter of, of perspective and how you look at it. Yeah, Don, uh, uh, Lawhead did a masterful job with that one. Okay, it's worth checking out. Okay, and that's and that's a, a whole series with the with the Arthur cycle, right? Talos right. and Merlin, uh, uh, Arthur, Arthur Grail and Pendragon. I think right. it is right, the right. first four and lost interest. The first the first one is great. The first three are good, and after that they kind of go downhill. Okay, all right, and and 
Dan, John, Dan hijacked your time, and and thank you for doing that, Dan. That's awesome. I'm sorry but, about no, that. that. And that's the way the roundtable works. Uh, uh, anything else before we? I just want to make sure we can also give Master Humphrey some some front up time <laughs> as well. So, I'll, I'll, sure, I'll add two quick things because it's not always it's just a roundtable. It's a lazy Susan, and I'm just going to take it back. <laughs> I love it. And uh, what I really think is that the more we think about this, the more we talk about this as a series of connected works. I think the first book isn't about Anna's uh, baby and shaming at all. I think that is the surprise ending or the inevitable fall at the end, but it's about setting up the warlord's relationship, perhaps a previous conflict, a previous interaction Interesting. that highlights uh, the young political lover that she has, Rafe, that suddenly decides, oh, maybe there is something going on with this warlord that we need to look at. Who knows who's right? And also, you know, makes the sh- losing a baby and losing her rank isn't nearly as bad as losing her entire life. So when the person she loves most decides she he's going to turn her back, his back on her as well. Um, the but but the, the emotional plot of that ending shouldn't be the the entire book. The book should be about a political or a serious day to day events in this kingdom. Could be storm season coming through. Right. Right. But but the the the. The, the ending, the, the, the thing that the character is going to be left struggling with is what happens to this character to make them want to come back to her later. I like that. I like that a lot. And, and, that, and, then, and then layering in on top of that, like you say, those, those day-to-day details, those, those political machinations with a smaller story that sets the ground for the larger story that evolves in, in future increments, in, installments. Everything counts in small amounts. <laughs> awesome. Very cool. Um, thank you, John. Uh, Brian, your first thought, yeah. sir. Okay, so um, a couple things. One is, are, what what kind of um, point of view are you looking at doing? Are you uh, doing multiple? I was thinking third person close on Anna. Um, okay, but I'm I'm not against multiples. I just I like as as John was pointing out the uh, the the unreliable narrator and having Anna be our our primary perspective for what's what's unfolding around her I think would would make for a stronger story. Yeah. Why, why do you ask just out of curiosity? Well, I I I would say don't close yourself off completely or allow yourself to still be open to the possibility of of you know shifting once in a while, but I think definitely sticking with Anna for a while is is kind of a cool way to go. Um but I I really think that I, I agree with John completely that the the first one should be focused on that. Um, but I, I think you, you need to have something that is consistently pushing in from the outside, some kind of outsider who gets in to poison the, uh, the metaphorical well, you know, um, whispers and rumors, somebody, some, something that is a symbol for the hatred of the community so that you can really develop the depth of the faith of these people because it's going to be difficult for, for me to buy... It's it's hard enough. It's kind of like the lottery, you know, buying into people who are okay allowing themselves to be sacrificed, especially with like, you know, you were talking about the bloodstones and stuff, which is a brilliant freaking image. Um, but it, it, their faith has to be so rooted in what they're doing and so well developed that I think you, you need to have this sort of um, misty, foggy symbol of their hate that that people hear whisperings about from time to time, somebody who got through that they're still looking for almost like a, a, Oh God, Arnold Schwarzenegger was in the first one. And then Colin Farrell did the total recall. recall. Yeah. Total recall. You know, we're like, there's, there's the resistance, but you keep hearing about this one particular figure that eventually, you know, it turns out to have uh, like a a fetus coming out of his stomach. Um, (laughs) I remember that dude. Yeah, the the other thing that I think might be kind of cool is I, I love the idea of of it like them, you know, it, the turmoil kind of ratchets up because storm season is approaching. Um, what if storm season makes them more vulnerable to rift walkers because it it does sometimes pull back the mist and then parts of their land that they didn't know existed, you know, so their boundaries are consistently kind of changing. Okay, I can see. So so at storm season, the 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 threat of invasion. Uh, uh, could be could be stronger, right? And maybe during storm season, they it requires more sacrifice, right? Yeah. Well, and that's and that's kind of the idea is that each sacrifice happens 
uh, at the beginning of storm season. So, you know, in, in, in the people's minds, uh, uh, the army, I mean, literally guys, think about, think about a hundred years, not, mm-hmm. no, screw that a thousand years, uh, uh, a thousand tombs every year, a new warrior, uh, uh, being added to the army that is defending, uh, uh, this land, pushing back the mist as it goes. Uh, uh so, so, you know, the the beginning of storm season, the army is is invoked and added to with this ritual sacrifice. Right. Uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cool. I dig it. Okay. I totally dig it. And then yeah. of course that 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 uh, opens up the opportunity for when the threat really starts materializing, for them to decide to speed up the process. Right. Okay. Can you can you expand on that a little? Well, if they sacrifice one person a year to bolster the ranks of this invisible army, gotcha, and they get an invasion force coming over the horizon, there's going to be an impetus for at least some of the people in the priesthood that are true believers rather than charlatans to start slaughtering people. Sure. Right. Right. Sure. Um, okay. uh, it occurred to me while Brian was talking, um, the, uh, another place to look for your... Uh, for a model for your city, there's two places. One would be uh, Shanghai in the early 20th century, and the other would be West Berlin. They're international cities in the middle of repressive uh, zones. Okay. Shanghai at what time? The- early 20th century. 20th century, okay. Yeah. The, uh, the, 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 cool, the other cool thing about them having to kind of ratchet it up, and, and like Dan was saying, you know, if you do have priests, because you're going to have some that are like, this is this is all bullshit, but others who absolutely believe in it and were raised in it and, and you know, are totally blinded by it, and like he said, just kind of start slaughtering people. So all of a sudden, no, the, it's no longer about ceremony. Anna's job is, you know, not only has she been discovered because of her daughter, but there's, you know, the they're almost becoming obsolete because they have to produce these these warriors at a at a faster pace. Okay. If I wanted to jump in, um I think the roles of people like Kafar might be interesting. I'm thinking about the the court intrigue and between the two courts intrigue between if I have this right in my head, the walled precincts, the way station uh part of culture, and I'm assuming a separate uh church life for the high priestess's special little ladies. Um, and the interaction between these two groups might be very interesting. Um, is it forbidden or encouraged for these, for people that are interacting with other cultures uh, and people, or to, to consort with people that are uh, the comforting uh, church su- surrounding the, the, the sacrifices? Uh, or, or is there any tension there to be explored? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and yes, uh, uh, there is actually, I guess what you've described is there's actually a third, uh, entity because there is, there is, I mean, this is a land with commerce and, and culture. And I mean, they're, they're storytellers extraordinaire because everyone needs to know the names and the heritage of all of the dead that are defending them. Uh, uh, history is very important. They have a rich cultural heritage. Uh, so there are nobles, there is commerce, there is a, uh, you know, think of it as, as Europe in, in the late medieval, uh, uh, or early Renaissance. Um, it, it's of that caliber, but then you've got, yes, John, as you pointed out, that precinct that is the gateway, the portal to the rest of the universe, uh, uh, and the people that dwell there are tainted uh, by the, the, you know, the rural people out in the, in the actual world on the other side of the wall uh, in, in Lycera proper. Um, uh, anybody that comes from the other side, you know, there's propaganda talking about, ooh, what's out there is evil, what's out there is bad, what's out there is a corruption uh, uh, that will prevent our honored dead, our ancestors, from defending us against certain doom and destruction. So anybody that's gone through there that's been on the other side has that taint, uh, uh, which for some is delicious and, and intriguing and sinful, and for others is, is the stench of, of the devil himself. Does that make sense? It does. Let me bogart the table one more second. Get it. When do we see these sacrifices come back? How do they interact? That I see, and that's the the story that I had envisioned that all of this was leading up to uh, uh, was a trip, a three year trip with Anna being chosen as a sacrifice. 
uh, and through that three-year trip, uh, experiencing the culture, experiencing uh, uh, Kefar's jaded nature, um, uh, and also discovering that someone is killing the sacrifices before they can be sacrificed. Uh, and this is Anna's son, uh, uh, who, who is, is, is literally bringing down hellfire and, de- and destruction upon the entire reality shard by denying the sacrifices, their addition into the armies, and thus compromising the, um, the ability of, whether it's the people's belief or the actual dead themselves, to fend off the void and the encroaching mists that will destroy the land. Um, so when do you see the sacrifices? My God, we've, I think we'd have to see them from the get-go. If we're talking from an installment thing, uh, uh, that would be like the end of episode two. We'd probably have to have a sacrifice. And when that, do we see them after the veil? After they've, after they've done as, as, as undead warriors beyond? Um, that would have to be probably at the end of act three of whatever story we're telling when, when the storm season comes and the veil parts briefly and we can see on the other side what that war looks like, at least maybe from a priest's perspective. Because okay. I'd imagine it looks from it looks like different this, things to different people. Yeah, this brings up a, a slate of other questions. First Please. of all, is the religion true or is it wrong? Yeah. <laughs> right. right. The answer yeah. to that question um, is yes. Okay. <laughs> at some point, at, at some point, you will have to reveal what's really going on if there's something really going on behind it. Sure. Second thing is you've got this reality that's in fragments that's asymptoting toward destruction. It's sort of like having the Milky Way at the tail end of the big chill. You know. Yes. Uh, exactly. Three hundred billion years from now. So there's a sense in which nothing what they're doing is gonna matter unless. It causes, um, unless at some point the story opens up and there is a possibility that the, um, the shards could repair the shattering or find, you know, or find some way to keep the void out indefinitely or whatnot. Because if, if, if you don't have that, that moment of opening out where the concerns become larger than the concerns of this one shard, Yes. Then you risk, and I'm not saying you can't pull this off. If you want to do it as a meditation on the abyss, those things can be done well. But if you don't want to do it as a meditation on the abyss, there needs to there needs to be something about this struggle that opens the world up, and and leads to a great much higher stakes. You know, saving or losing the entire universe, that kind of thing. Sure. And that's really hard to pull off. It's it's doable. People have done it, but but it's something that you'll want to keep in mind because if if the universe is closed, it's going to dictate a whole other approach because it's going to be thematic elements that you need to deal with because your your readers are going to be firmly aware that it doesn't matter what's going on here; they're all going to die anyway. Okay. Well, as as Brian can attest, um, this is just one of five other stories. Uh, set in five different shards of this whole universe. Yeah, I knew you had multiple books. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, uh, there, there are, are adventure stories. There's, there's westerns, um, and there is an epic fantasy story that explains everything that's going on in the shattered worlds, how they came to be, blah blah blah. And that's that's George R. R. Martin esque. This story, I'd like to keep fairly intimate. And fairly close, and have have each of these stories that are being developed be uh, uh, an exploration of of what the shard represents thematically, uh, and and so that you know, ultimately to develop a different style of storytelling in each shard and see where that takes me. Meta, you're going to be exploring a different facet of specfic in every different shard. Bam! Yes, exactly, exactly. I think this is a really great opportunity for a franchise, but beware of the expansion creep. You need to have uh, some clear plot points as well as some clear plug-in points that are going to foreshadow the other parts so that it doesn't wash out or seem like it doesn't fit when the next one rolls around. Yeah, and right. I'm I'm not even ready to to, to ponder that that much larger <laughs> terrain. Next um, year. Next yeah, next year. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll have done uh, this for one, another year. One one bit of advice I would give you though. 
Start your wiki now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, I'm dead serious. This you've yeah. got a continuity nightmare sizing up here, and if you don't keep track of everything as you go, you're gonna get two, three books or novellas into this, and you're not gonna be able to write anymore. Right. Because you won't be able to keep it all in your head. Yeah. Yeah. I and basically what you're saying is translate all the shit in the Excel spreadsheets and the Word docs and the databases that's already there and, and make it recognizable and accessible. Yes. But make but don't do that in place of writing. Right. And then <laughs> as you go, as you go, anytime you write, when you're writing, anytime you come up with a new fact that you're going to need, that you ever need to reference again, that you may ever want to be able to review, do, you know, control alt C, put a, put a margin note in your word doc. This bit needs to go into the wiki. And then once you're done with your, with your book, you go back through and you load all that shit into the wiki. Nice. Nice. Yeah, that's that's awesome. awesome. That's a great strategy. Whew. Oh yeah. Okay, I, I I got a question for you, Dave. Yeah, yeah. Um why does anybody want to go to this place in the first place? What why do they need this army? What are they defending? And if they're so awesome and nobody can get through, what is it that they're holding on to that other people want that what would necessitate an invasion the, in the first place? Yeah. What is it that they're trading at the trading port? Even? Right, right, exactly. So uh, one of the, uh, first of all, um, uh, uh, the, u- the usual stuff, and I, when I say that, I know that's, that's awfully dismiss- dismissive, um, but rare dyes uh, uh, and textiles, these guys are great at weaving uh, uh, because they're all about creating things that endure because their whole life is built around th- the, the possibility of, of death at any time and knowing that the dead are there and, and at your shoulder as long as you remember them. So storytelling, weaving, instruments, and probably the most profoundly effective uh, healing medicines in the world come out of Lycia, like Lycera. I, I I I may be alone on this, but I think the problem that I have with it is it's all manufacturing stuff, and I, was I think if the same if I was an army, I would be more likely to find a way to trade for that rather than try to oppress a people and force them to make those things for me. So if I'm going to invade somewhere, I want to invade somewhere where I can kill everybody that's there and still reap the benefits. The other thing that this place has that no other shard has is at least up to the point of the telling of this story, it is the only shard in existence whose boundaries have been expanding steadily. Okay. So you got real estate that's relatively yeah, safe. Exactly. More character-based thing before we wrap up? Yes, please. Um, your um, kafar, your smuggler, yeah. how, much, how, much, how much sanctioned travel is there between the shards? Uh, between Lycera and other shards, zero, none. No one leaves Lycera. But the other shards, the other shards, there's there is a fair bit of traffic. There is a lot of traffic. Uh, uh the Rift Walkers, there there's enough magic around the Rift Walking skill. Uh, the ships can ply the void. Uh, caravans move from one shard to the other. Uh, there's even people that are actually facilitating some sort of communication device between shards, but that's just speculation at this point. So there's, there's a fair bit of, of back-and-forth commerce and, and empire going yeah, on between the shards. Even in, even in Russia, people got blue jeans. Okay, I see what so, you're saying. Yeah, so there's going to be some black market, some great channel, and that's a great source for... Tell me, let me hear that song about the Beatles or oh. uh, let, me, let me, that's going to impact society in another way. Nice. Nice. Yes. Okay. Okay. And that, and that actually serves as a nice hook to, to lead the reader outside of this shard when we're ready to move on to a new environment. And it could be a nice benign way to get Kafar started on what becomes a kind of a career path. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Thank you, John. All right. Yeah, we are definitely wrapping up. We, we've reached the end of our time zone. So, gentlemen, let's take one last turn around the table uh, uh, and, and load me. I mean, my God, you've already loaded me down with massive amounts of epic literary gold, but I'm greedy. So I'm going to ask for one more turn around the lazy Susan and uh, uh, ask for, for closing thoughts. Uh, send me off with, with wisdom in my pocket. Dan Sawyer, uh, uh, closing thoughts for me, sir? 
Uh, pay attention to economics and how that affects the self-interest of your point of view characters ah, yes. as they perceive it. And you gave us that bit of advice a year ago. I remember it very well. It's, it, it's one of those things that authors often don't think about, but it's such a goldmine. Yes, yes. Totally agree. Thank you. John Miro, final thoughts? Well, first of all, he ain't heavy. He's a writer. Uh, so- <laughs> <laughs> Damn skippy. I think that the key to success in your stories is going to be the little characters that you can use as threads, especially if you are going to embrace uh, a multi-part structure that you may end up sandwiching all back into a hardcover book at some point. That doesn't matter for now, but it's the little characters that are going to tie the plots together. So pay special loving attention to those little guys that might be able to bring a touch of all the flavors into the various plots. I like that. I like that. In fact, as I was building this, 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 story pitch uh, a lot of those little characters started pinging me uh, uh, talking about what they could what they could add to the story so yes awesome thank you but yeah when, when when they when you when you've got a little character that breaks out let them do it okay makes yeah. such a difference uh, I had that experience with free will Volish took over the book and I wouldn't have it another way <laughs> that's your subconscious telling you it's found a better way listen to that excellent will do mr. Humphrey sir yeah, so Dave, <laughs> you, th- I, I love this world. I love every story that you and I have talked about in this world. <laughs> and we have gone through these so many times and just bantered back and forth and back and forth, and I'm cutting you off. Oh, no. You are, you are no longer allowed to talk to me about it. The next time that I want to experience this world, I want to see it in writing. The words. So stop talking, get Excellent. your ass in the chair, and write the fucking book. <laughs> a thousand words a day, man. You'll be done in no time. Oh. That's right. All right. All right. I, okay. I, you're, you're my brother from another mother. I cannot refuse Absolutely. you. So, all right, done. I, I get I, it done. Officially cut off. Wow. <laughs> Uh, holy crap this this has been an incredible learning experience for me uh uh first of all no i'm not even going to try and sum up all of the awesomeness you guys gave me but to every guest writer who who has come onto this show and sat down uh uh you have so much more respect than you already had uh, uh beforehand having actually gone through what you've gone through holy crap from both of us yes yeah I mean, we've both done this it's yeah. <laughs> amazing just it's, amazing it's it's actually kind of torturous what we put our guest writers through that's right that's right it is yeah. but you know and, and by god i'm going to write this sucker just because i want to be knighted i yes. want to be sir dave that's right, and Bam. I will knight you personally, and we'll we'll bring uh, Dan and and John back, and awesome, and you'll beat the crap out of me. Great ceremony, yeah. <laughs> fabulous, Dan, John, gentlemen, uh, uh, you 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 both have been so much a part of the roundtable from the from the yeah. very beginning, uh, and honestly, I cannot thank you enough for being a part of this celebration of. Uh, 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 one year of getting as much literary gold out into the world as we can. It, it has meant volumes to me and Brian that you did so, and we really appreciate it. Thank you, Absolutely. gentlemen. It's our pleasure, really. All right. Wow. So there it is, friends. Uh, uh, part two of our anniversary celebration. Uh, you've heard Brian's story, then now you've heard mine. Uh, workshopped by by gentlemen and scholars all uh, with some, just some amazing stuff. I'm gonna have to play this back, Brian. I, I'm totally gonna have yeah. to play this back a dozen times. There's my I, I took notes. Why did I take notes when I knew it was recorded? <laughs> I had to because it was awesome. Uh, now, friends, uh, uh, we're all sitting here going, "Wow, holy crap, that was kind of cool." Um, and I'm sure you're all were jotting down notes right along with me. Um, now the, the awesome thing is, is that this starts all over again in just a couple of days. One year is not nearly enough. We have so many years ahead of us. And the way that happens is by doing it day after day, week after week. And in just a couple of days, that's exactly what we're going to do. Have more awesome guest hosts bringing their awesome mojo to the table. More courageous guest writers, uh, bringing their story ideas bravely for discussion. More literary gold for everyone. Brian, that's that's it's been a great party, cake or no cake, dude. 
That's right. It's been fabulous. It has. And and what a, what a cool experience. Yeah. And 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 now in a couple of days we we got a couple of days to kill. What what are you going to do? I know what I'm going to do. <laughs> um I'm going to go sleep. <laughs> Awesome. Well, then I will go right because that's that's Absolutely. what my that's what my mandate is, and it should be yours too. Friends, you find what you're looking for. So set your sights on awesome. Set your sights on wow. Set your sights on holy crap, and it shall be yours. I promise you. We will be back in just a couple of days with more roundtable awesomeness. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frosty, be awesome, and we will talk to you soon. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye, John. I love you all. <laughs> this episode is copyright 2013 by the roundtable podcast and is released under a creative commons attribution non-commercial share alike license that means don't sell it but you can share it all you like and you can even use pieces of it in your own derivative work as long as you attribute us as the source and release the work under the same licensing terms Theme music composed and performed by the talented Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you'd like to be a guest writer or guest host, or learn more about the Roundtable Podcast, please visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. Our Twitter tag is at writerspodcast, or you can send us an email at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.